Good morning. Good to be with you. Um, hello from the weird city of Austin, where we keep Austin weird. It's, it's uh, well, I won't take time to explain that. It's weird. It's not like the rest of Texas. The rest of Texas, conservative, we're progressive and liberal and weird. You have this guy that drives around the city on a bicycle and nothing but a thong. I mean, it's just stuff like that. You know, our, our city mascot was Leslie Cochran. He died recently, but he was a homeless man with a boob job and walked around in a tutu. So, I mean, Austin is weird, right? Now you agree, right? So, hi from Weird Austin. Um, we're looking at a topic this morning that's kind of perplexing for some people, you know, challenging, daunting, the topic of evangelism. Most of us would probably say, I'm not an evangelist, you know, and we also know kind of Bible says, do the work of an evangelist. So let's look at that, and um, let's look at that in several ways. First, um, in an age where we're told to find what's true for you, is it even plausible to engage in evangelism? Should the church adapt to the times? Um, is it plausible? Second, um, what's the process, or what does gospel persuasion look like? What should it look like today? Uh, given cultural shifts. And then third, what's the, what's the power behind, the strength behind evangelism? So three things, okay? Uh, the plausibility of evangelism, the, uh, the persuasion of evangelism, and the power of, of evangelism. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for, uh, I want to thank you for evangelizing me with the beauty of the gospel and the power and grace of the risen Christ, and for all the saints here that have been um, welcomed into the kingdom by your good news, we rejoice. Father, let the joy carry forward out of our lives into the lives of others. Help us to think well uh, about evangelism, which is um, a difficult topic today, and uh, I pray that your spirit would help all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we had, worked, we had just moved to the oldest seaport in America, Gloucester, Massachusetts, and uh, I was there for seminary, and I heard a rap at the door, so opened the door, and there were two smiling people um, who said, hey, do you want to talk about God? So being the young, kind of, you know, eager seminarian, I said, sure, come on in. And so we began to talk, and as we chatted, I realized quickly beneath the veneer of kindness, there was a deliberate agenda that these people wanted to coerce me to believe what they believed. Uh, that they kind, of, they kind of felt icky, you know, kind of like this pressure for me to kind of cave in to their doctrines and to, watch, to read their scary Watchtower magazine. Um, and wasn't a pleasant experience. You know, a lot of people who are not Christians feel that way about Christians who share the gospel. You don't have to knock on the door, but you, the, the idea that, you know, someone would evangelize me is actually offensive. Um, they, you know, Christians are so pushy with their beliefs. They're so coercive. In fact, um, the way that people see it is that it's basically religious people trying to dominate others with their doctrine. So is it plausible to, uh, to engage in evangelism? Um, Think about this. If someone came to you with an issue and uh, you heard them out on their issue or their problem and you realized they weren't really seeing things correctly, you know, that they needed to shift their perspective, uh, you might point them to a book or an article or just talk to them and say, I, I don't think you're seeing things in the right light. What, do, what would you be doing in that instance? 
you would be trying to change their beliefs, right? Now, let's say that this person is in a difficult situation. Let's say that they're um, crippled by anxiety. Maybe they struggle with depression. Uh, Maybe there's some kind of addiction in their life. You might not just suggest a book. You might insist that they believe you, that they get help, right? That they get a counselor. You might even perform an intervention in their lives. Now, what are you doing? You are trying to convert them to your way of thinking, aren't you? You see, it's not just Christians that convert. Everybody's trying to get somebody to convert to their way of thinking. And you could say, in a sense, that everybody evangelizes. The question is, what and why? Why are we evangelizing, and what are we evangelizing for? Well, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus and Paul are motivated by love. You know, it's the love of God that compels you. Um, and so uh, you might say, well, we're compelled by love, so people should, you know, people should listen to us. But you could also make the same argument about the Jehovah's Witness, that they were compelled by love, that they wanted me to be one of the 144,000, right? And so they wanted to get me in. Does that mean I should believe them because they're loving people? No. So see, it's not just a matter of why, your motivation, it's a matter of what. What are you trying to convert me to? What do you want me to believe? Why do you think that Christianity of all the religions is the thing I should put my faith in? That's what we have to think about. So let's think about that then in Colossians uh, chapter 1. What is Paul saying that we should convert our way of thinking to? First, in in Colossians 4, he kind of mentions it, and then we'll jump back to to chapter 4. In in Colossians uh, 1, he says... praying that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Uh, the mystery of Christ. Now, what is that? See, Paul, Paul, you're saying that you want people to believe the mystery of Christ. That doesn't really clear things up for me. So what is the mystery of Christ? You go back to chapter 1 and look there, verses 24 to 29, and we find um, what the mystery is. Briefly, he explains it. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is what you're trying to convert me to. This is what we're trying to convert other people to. That we're wanting them to believe. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now why is that worth converting to? Why is it worth believing in Christ, the hope of glory? The word glory means weightiness or weight. Um, and you could say that just about everybody in the world wants weight. Nobody wants to be weightless. Everybody wants to have significance, right? Permanence, to be valued, right? Everybody has a deep sense that they want to count, right? That we want to have a, a sense of weight. And he's saying here that there is a hope of weightiness to your life. There is a hope of glory that can come to you. And he, he wants us and he wants the world to be converted to this weight of glory. But the problem is that we often try to find weight in other places, don't we? We try to find significance or permanence in our career and how successful we are. Or we try to find weight and significance in how much someone cares about us. Or if we have someone that cares about us. Maybe uh, there's some uh, kind of relationship with your family. 
if, if they would just take me seriously. But we're grabbing for weight everywhere. We're looking for significance. And if, if we're doing that, apart from Christ, we're actually seeking you in you, not Christ in you, the weight of glory. That we are bent on self-glory. Don't we do this? We, we grab glory from other places. We grab weight from other places other than Christ, the hope of glory. And so it, it, one philosopher said, it's an exercise in the lovely idea of self. That we are hell-bent on finding something to prop us up, to give us the weight that we want. And when we look for it outside of Christ, eventually it will fail. And so Paul is pressing upon the church, and we want others to believe that there is a weight, there is a permanence that transcends you and you, all you've done, all you could ever do, and it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, there's a little short story written by Ernest Hemingway, and in this story, uh, it's kind of semi-autobiographical. There's a soldier that comes back, who's kind of the Hemingway figure, comes back from the war. And after he comes back from the war, uh, well, he's actually injured. And so he goes to a military hospital. And it's there that he meets other soldiers that have been injured. And they kind of, you know, start talking. And what did you get injured for, you know? And, well, Hemingway uh, got a medal, but it was for an accident. And all the other guys he's talking to also got medals, but it was for valor. Something a little weightier than just an ordinary accident. And so at night, after cocktails, he would go back to his room. And he would find himself imagining that he had done all the things that they had done to get their medals. Imagining weight. You ever do this? You ever compare yourself to someone imagining that you had their beauty? Imagining that you had their success? imagining that you had their influence, stealing their medals in the silence of your mind. You in you, the bankrupt hope of glory, instead of Christ in you, the true hope of glory. Occasionally I've seen a conference, Christian conference pop up and the list of speakers and I'll kind of run my eyes down the list and Okay, pick that person. Okay, huh? Well, why, why didn't they call me? You know, like I, mean, I could do as good a job. Maybe you think I could actually do a little bit better than that guy. And I'm stealing their medals, right? I'm looking for their glory. It's me and me, not Christ in me. So good thing they didn't invite me, right? We're hell bent on glory. And here's the thing about this. It's very difficult to tell someone about the freedom and the joy of Christ in you, the hope of glory, when you are imprisoned by the cell of self-fulfillment. It's very hard to overflow and invite people into the kingdom of God when you are imprisoned in the kingdom of self. Isn't it true? That when we believe the heresy of self-fulfillment, it's so difficult to convince people of the liberating truth of the rescuing God in Christ. And so it's important for our evangelism, it's important for our sense of weight, that we come back to Christ 
in you the true hope of glory. We've thought a little bit about the plausibility of evangelism, that it is motivated by love, and the what is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what we're trying to convince people of, and we need to be convinced of it over and over again. So let's think about the, the second, the, the process or the, the, the nature of persuasion as we engage with people. <clears throat> you know, today, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on technique. If you just say it like this, if you, you know, use this tract, whatever, it kind of evangelism often devolves into a technique. And when you're on the other side of technique, you can feel like I kind of felt across from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Kind of icky, unloved, a project to be completed, not a person to be loved. And Oz Guinness, in one of his new books, uh, Cultural Apologist, says something very interesting. He says that today our preoccupation with technique misses the independence of the biblical way of thinking and the brilliance and depth of the way of Jesus. And so in this point, I'd like to try to climb into that with you, that there is an independent way of thinking. There is a brilliance and a depth to the evangelism of Jesus. And let's look at it through his disciple, the Apostle Paul. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Does that sound like technique? Does that sound like a rehearsed canned presentation to you? It doesn't. Does it? it sounds actually quite dignifying if someone would take me seriously and be gracious and answer me personally, each person. So let's take these three things here. Always be gracious. Walk in wisdom. Answer each person. Uh, let's look at those three things and see what we can learn. And I think it'll be interesting that, you know, as we unfold that we have not a technique, but really the nature of the gospel itself as we think about um, evangelism. Always be gracious. Let's start there. What would it look like to be somebody like that? Always gracious with other people. Uh, Paul says it's like being, your speech being seasoned like salt. Right? So what, what is he trying to say there with that image? Well, you know, what does salt do to food? It enlivens it, right? It makes it richer. It makes it, I don't even use the word engaging, but, you know, but he's talking about speech. So the idea that someone always is gracious, the conversation doesn't always curve back on yourself. You know those kind of people? You know, it's always, they're always talking, never asking questions. You know, um, maybe we're those people sometimes. Always be gracious means you're considering the needs of others. You're asking questions about their lives. You're getting beyond the, just kind of the surface stuff to their story. Down to the heart, eventually, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, their longings, their desires. A person who's gracious does what Jesus did in that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he put the interests of others before himself. The cross-centered life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the way that you should engage people. That instead of trying to project what you know, you want to know them. And so you listen, you ask questions, you try to climb into their life, into their heart. Francis Schaeffer, uh, apologist of the 20th century, was asked, if you had an hour with a non-Christian, how would you spend it? 
And he said, well, I would listen for 55 minutes, and then in the last five minutes would I have something to say. Today we've reversed it. We want to give a presentation for 55 minutes and then expect a response. Isn't it true? And why is that? Perhaps it's because we don't want to put the interests of others before us. We just want to check the box, deliver the message, and move on. You know, love is inefficient. <laughs> you got to slow down and get to know this person. you got to find out what they're afraid of, what they love, what they hope, and somehow connect it to the gospel. But isn't that the gospel? The inefficiency of love? Jesus coming, dying, rising, being interrupted in his life and ministry, tending to children, to women, to men. Love is inefficient. And the person who is always gracious will be a person who is at times inefficient, who climbs into the lives of others. All right, always be gracious and then walk in wisdom toward outsiders. How do you do that? Uh, there's a variety of things we could, we could look at um, on this particular point, walking in wisdom towards outsiders. But if I'm not a Christian, and maybe that's you this morning, you may not, you may not even like the word outsiders. You know, like, I mean, it's kind of an us versus them mentality. And so maybe a, a way to walk in wisdom towards outsiders is to show them that there's very little difference between the outsiders and the insiders. It's not that Christians are better. In fact, I know a lot of non-Christians that are more moral than Christians. So maybe what we need to do is show them that we need Christ just as much as they need Christ. That we need to believe the gospel just as much as they need to believe the gospel and dissolve that barrier down to the stub of Christ between insiders and outsiders. Now, how would you do that? Uh, share the gospel with yourself out loud. Okay? Share the gospel with yourself out loud. In other words, share your need for Christ with other people, and as you do, they'll be convinced of its authenticity and its power. For example, uh, I was hanging out with a guy, and we were talking uh, in a pub, and he was not a Christian. He was asking me all kinds of philosophical questions. It was late in the evening. Um, we kind of came in from the beer garden into the inside, and we continued to chat, and had answered a lot of crazy questions. Um, and uh, at one point, he just looks at me, and he says, man, Jonathan, do you ever doubt? And I said, you know, I don't doubt the fundamental claims of Jesus, but I do struggle with unbelief. And he just kind of did one of those, like, he's saying, like, aren't those the same thing? I said, here's an example. Um, earlier today, I was on Twitter, and I put out a really insightful statement uh, for people to read. And uh, so I, I checked back after a few minutes, and nobody had noticed how insightful my statement was. Uh, so, you know, I gave him some time and checked back, you know, 30 minutes later. Again, no comments. Uh, so clearly just not enough time for people to soak in my wisdom. And so I gave him another hour to check back. Still no retweet, no comments, no gold star favorite. No, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. And my heart sank. Why? Because I was believing in the approval of the anonymous Twittersphere and that its approval was better than the approval of God in Christ. You ever do that? I was disbelieving the gospel. My heart was in a moment of unbelief.
that the approval and love of God the Father could surpass anything that anyone could ever give me. What did I do? I shared the gospel with myself out loud. And to dissolve and walk wisely with outsiders, we need to show them that we need the gospel just as much as they do. That Christ is just essential to us as he would be to them. And the difference that he makes in enjoying, in my case, the perfect love of a father. Always be gracious, walk in wisdom, and then answer each person. It's interesting that he says that. You know, answer each person. As if to say, don't drop a presentation on them, but listen to them and engage them and know them and then answer them. And in fact, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he doesn't have a canned gospel presentation. It's not that God can't use those, but getting back to the independence and the brilliance and depth of Jesus, we find that he responds to each person differently. To the woman who wants thirst, he, he promises living water. To the person hungry with bread, he promises the bread of heaven. To people who are farmers, he talks about agrarian uh, metaphors. To lawyers, he talks about He's constantly responding to people in language that they can understand and tapping into things that they long for. He's answering each person. How do you do that today? Um, How do you do it today when most people believe in the policy of tolerance? Uh, Again, you find what's true for you. So how do you answer a tolerant person in order for them to understand and embrace Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think we need to make a distinction uh, between old and new tolerance. There's a classical tolerance, and in classical old tolerance, um, it was essentially the belief that, and it's been around forever, uh, that every belief has the right to exist. The belief of Muslims, the belief of Buddhists, the belief of Christians. Classical tolerance says every belief has the right to exist. And if you think about it, in a sense, Jesus practiced classical tolerance. He didn't lead a campaign against uh, you know, imperial Caesar worship. He wasn't constantly dismantling the philosophical Greek thinking. But he was insistent that he was the way, the truth, and the life, wasn't he? So classical tolerance and then new tolerance. Uh, if classical tolerance says every, right, every belief has a right to exist, new tolerance says every belief is equally true. Now that's a leap. And what's happened in modern culture is that we've jettisoned classical tolerance that gives dignity to people to believe what they want to believe and said everything that we all believe is the same. And if we all tolerated it, then we'd all get along, we'd all be much better. But actually, this is a religion of its own. The new tolerance says, don't believe what you want to believe, believe what I believe, that all paths lead to one, that uh, all beliefs are equally true, and it dogmatically insists that you believe what it believes, the religion of tolerance. It's self-defeating, you see. It doesn't work. It's irrational. It's not logical. So if we can, in a conversation with someone, who espouses tolerance. I mean, my goodness, I've had so many conversations. People kind of throw that out. You know, well, I think we should be more tolerant. 
But what if you just said, well, what do you mean by tolerant? Well, I think, you know, all things are, you know, equally valid. And then you say, well, have you thought about or heard of the distinction between classical and new tolerance? Because this is a very new concept. And for most of human history, when people have said tolerance, they've meant the dignity to believe what you want to believe. So in answering people who espouse tolerance, um, how do we get the gospel to be believable then? Well, perhaps you make that point. And then perhaps uh, you show the uniqueness of Christianity. Let me give you a story. So I was talking to a gentleman um, one night, and we were having a conversation um, really about Christianity and at a, a bar in downtown Austin. And he said, hey, I've, I've just texted my friend Brian. He's going to join us. And I was kind of bummed because I was like, man, this is a great conversation. I knew Brian wasn't a Christian. Brian shows up. He's all bouncy. And, um, uh, you know, he he's plops himself down. And he's like, oh, you guys are talking about Christianity? Oh, man. Well, what about the Muslims? I was like, well, well okay, uh, Brian, what, what do you mean, what about the Muslims? He said, well, well yeah, I mean, I mean, you guys say Christians are going to heaven. What about the Muslims, man? I mean, you know, aren't they going to heaven? I said, well, I mean, you know, um, that's a good question. You know, uh, are we all kind of going to the same place? And uh, so we, we talked about it, and, and I kind of made some of the distinctions between Islam and Christianity. Islam is really kind of five pillars of working your way to heaven. If you keep the five pillars of Islam, God may accept you. But in Christianity, God works his way down to us, and, uh, and he rescues us and forgives us and then brings us back up to heaven. So it's a kind of a different, fundamentally different dynamic going on. He said, okay, okay. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, Muslims, dude, they, they're willing to die for what they believe. I mean, you see it on the news all the time. Like, they, they will strap a bomb to their chest because they believe it so deeply, so sincerely. I was like, yeah, I think we have a lot. Christians have a lot to learn from the, that kind of genuine belief, that intensity. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, humbling. But, yeah, I said, you know, Brian... Um, just because you're sincere doesn't mean that you're true. Just because you're earnest doesn't mean that you're right. And so while I want to acknowledge the sincerity of these Muslims, it doesn't mean, in fact, that what they believe is true. That's a whole different matter. You know, it's kind of like, oh, okay. It's like, so the question still in front of us is, what is true? And you have to kind of take Jesus at his word. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is exclusive on this point. He wants to include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but he includes them through his exclusive love and work, his death and resurrection. So don't you see, Brian, that it's actually, you have to kind of take it or leave it. You can't just say he's a moral teacher. You can't just say he's a nice guy. You can't just say he's very insightful, because that's not what he's saying. He's saying I'm fundamentally the way. I'm fundamentally the truth. I'm fundamentally the life. And would you, would you just observe for a moment how different it is from Islam? That in Islam, you've got to kind of do all this stuff to work your way to heaven. It's, it's a, and all religions are fundamentally like this. That, they, that it's, you've got to work your way to God. But in Christianity, the God works his way down to you. And in Christianity, the God gets hurt for you. And in Christianity, that God gets killed for you so that you can be forgiven and taken into his kingdom, into his glory, and eventually into his heaven. So I try to listen. 
be gracious, ask questions, show the dignity of other beliefs and sincerity and acknowledge that, you know, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, and then answer each person, a tolerant person, a progressive person, to show them the uniqueness of Christianity. Now, Brian, um, I guess probably two or three years later, is a worship leader um, at a church and uh, following Jesus. Yeah, you can clap for that. So, we thought about the plausibility of evangelism. We thought about the nature of persuasion or kind of a process, you know, always be gracious, walk in wisdom, answer each person. Now, finally, um, the power behind evangelism. Um, This is really important, and it's kind of like Christians kind of tack it on to evangelism, but it's not a tack on. It is the essence. It is the power. It is evangelism doesn't work without this. And Paul says, he puts a massive emphasis on it. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Not just pray one time. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. You see, biblical evangelism is not coercive, uh, but it does recognize there is a power. The power is not our power. The power is not in our technique. The power is not in our personality. It's not in our training. The power is in God. Now, Paul, essentially what he's saying is if we aren't praying for people who don't know Jesus, then we have misunderstood power and we have really misunderstood love. If you're not praying for non-Christians, then you've misunderstood power and you've misunderstood love. How? We've misunderstood power and that we assume we have the power to convert. That if we just do it, it'll happen. Or if we're smart enough, or if we're winsome enough, right? Or if we nail the presentation, misunderstanding of power. What about love? I think prayer is the most loving thing that you could ever do for somebody. Why is that? Because you're taking the needs of people to the most powerful, loving being in the universe. And you're pleading that God would meet their needs. The most capable person you know. And you're bringing those specific needs to him and saying, would you meet these needs? How how important would it be then with the most foundational need of every human being to know Christ in you the hope of glory how how important would it be then to ask the most powerful person in the world to give them the hope of glory be supremely important and to not do it would to be not loving so you see prayer is not just attack on prayer is the engine of the Christian life it is the fuel of evangelism why is that Because it's appealing to God, to his power, and to his love. So the plausibility of evangelism, the nature of persuasion, and praying for others. At the uh, kind of the end of Hemingway's short story, he has actually met a major at this military hospital. And uh, the major has since lost his wife. 
And he says to Hemingway, you know, hey, what are you going to do, you know, after the war's over? And he says, you know what, I'm going to go back to the States. I'm going to find a wife. I'm going to settle down. And the major responds adamantly saying this, you are a fool. A man must not marry. He should find things that he cannot lose. He should find things that he cannot lose. Have you found the thing that you cannot lose? Christ in you, the hope of glory? If you have, then share it. Share Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you haven't found the thing that you cannot lose because Christ has secured it, everlasting love, enduring approval, eternal weight, then would you consider Christ? Would you turn to him and seek him? Seek him for his forgiveness. Seek him for his weight. Seek him for his glory. If you do, you'll find the thing that you can never lose. Let's pray. Lord, we do not deserve this remarkable news concerning your son. Thank you that we have not received it based on our deservingness, but uh, on the deservingness of Christ, that he has laid down his life and taken it up for us to have the hope of glory in our chests. Would you forgive us for seeking glory, for stealing medals, and for neglecting others? And would you, in your kindness and in your grace, bring us back to Christ to enjoy your forgiveness, to embrace your weight, and to live in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you appreciate that? Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. You know, as followers of Christ, uh, we're called to live depending on Christ, preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of our identity, our hope. Everything's in Christ. It's Christ in us. And uh, as we live out there as missionaries, as we live next to our neighbors, invite them over for meals and interacting with them and praying for them, we just never want to forget the hope and the joy and the power of the message that we carry, the gospel. And so hopefully uh, today was fueled to your fire as you live as a missionary, cleverly disguised as whatever you are in that moment, uh, with whoever God brings into your life in that moment. And maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you're just realizing, I don't have a relationship with Christ. And, and I want to begin that relationship with Christ. Uh, we urge you to do so. If everything that you heard makes sense, and obviously there's a, a huge depth of things to learn and to explore and to discover in that, but you've got to take that first step. And so one of the ways you can do that is uh, there's a response card and a chair around you. Or if you're online, you can email us at connect at CVC online. And uh, you can take that response card. And there's some clarity on a couple verses there. And there's also a prayer guide just to help guide you to talk to the Lord and, and seek uh, that which he's offered to you. And so if you respond that way, would you just fill out that response card and, and put it in the baskets here in a little bit? Or if the baskets go by too fast, bring it to us in person in the information area or email us. And we'd love to take this first step that you are responding to the invitation of Christ and help you grow 
in your new relationship with Christ. Also, if you're here as a believer, um, or if you're online, you can look online as well. But if you're here, uh, Jonathan's book, The Unbelievable Gospel, is available out there. It's $10. If you just want to uh, read and, and hear more about this approach and just, uh, you know, again, learn and grow, those are available for you as well. Let's pray. Let's receive our offering this morning and then head out of here as missionaries um, to those God's sending us to. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the reminder via your word teaching and stories that, God, we carry the most amazing message ever. The forgiveness and new life come through belief in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And it's not just for heaven, but it's for life on earth, that our deepest needs can be met, our deepest deepest longings can be met. So, God, would you just continue to stir in us a heart for those who don't know you, stir in us the courage it takes and the love that it takes uh, to reach out to them through prayer and through caring actions and through the opening of our mouth and proclaiming the good news. And God, take these gifts we're about to receive, Lord, receive them as expressions of our trust and dependence in you. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would multiply them for your kingdom work here in Northeast Ohio and beyond. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.